You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning. Good morning, Redemption. So I'm old school. I'm moving my podium over here. I like to hit on, have something to hit on when I'm preaching. Um, I know I truly just don't trust myself with technology like Zach and Brandon and everyone does with their little beep, beep, boop, beep, beep. Um, so I have paper. I have my paper. Um, but yeah, good morning. I am really excited. Uh, I'm excited to be here. As Lauren said, uh, my husband and I, we've been going to Redemption for yeah, like three and a half years now, which is crazy because we got sucked into a time warp for the last two years of COVID and somehow now it's been almost you know four years and, um, and that's wild. Uh, but yeah, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to, to preach this morning on the 4th of July weekend. Nothing gets me patriotic like a three-day weekend does. Amen. I'm going to get I'm gonna get the church in trouble in 30 seconds of preaching. Um, no, but I'm excited to be here. Um, Lauren gave a pretty great intro. That's pretty much who I am. I just finished my, my seminary degree, and uh, I was driving here this morning, and there was like a song that just came on, I don't know, just a random shuffle that I had playing, and it was a song that I think I had listened to particularly when I was like 19, 20, and I just, I just really wanted to preach. I just remember being that age, and that's like all I wanted, but I was in college, and I wasn't on track to do anything like this, and that song came on this morning, and there was something that was just like so, just filled me with a gratitude that can often be overwhelmed by nerves or preparation. And so all that to be said, I'm just really thankful and grateful to be in a place that 19-year-old Jordan would have just been really excited about, to be at a place that fosters me here doing this, getting to um, be in a congregation that celebrates that. So I'm stoked to be here. No more waterworks, that's it. Um, as Lauren said and mentioned, we are, we're in Acts. We're in a series on Acts, and I think I am the fifth or sixth week in this series. And we've kind of been, we've run the gamut on the book. We've been kind of all over um, the place, touched a lot of things. And it's just really particularly pertinent right now as our church is going through its own shift and its own change. Um, so, so we've talked about the church as just a big whole entity and what is it? We've talked about um, the, the racism and the persecution that was, that was evident and present in its earliest days, and yet how the Spirit still provided this defining rhythm for the church in its earliest days. Um, we've talked about, Brandon talked about the, uh, the radical inclusivity that the story of the Ethiopian eunuch attests to. Um, and, then, and then Zach last week talked about 
this intrusive power uh, of grace that Acts just speaks to again and again and again. And it's something that I have felt particularly pastored to by, by Zach over his time here and my time here. So I um, just thought it was a really beautiful, beautiful message um, last week. There was a, there's a song that we sing at worship that Mike will lead. Uh, the, I think it's a, like the belly of the deepest love by Towers. It's probably one of my favorites that we sing, but there's this refrain that says like, I tried to get to you, but you came to me instead. And it's just this refrain that I feel like is really the heart of last week's message and the heart of so much of um, how Zach has taught us and how he's pastored us over the last um, several years. So all that he said, we've been kind of everywhere. And so when I was approached um, with this opportunity, I was like, what do I do? Where do I go? And so uh, the way I started thinking about it was I went from a big, big macro view. I was like, all right, what even, what even is the spiritual life? <laughs> like, what are we doing here? Um, why, why are we here? What's our, what is our, um, what's our goal? What's our attempt in, in having and maintaining a spiritual life? And I kind of just came to the space where I think that so much of it is just us trying to encounter the divine, that's, that's what it is. We're seeking and we're searching that. And sometimes it's going high in worship and raising up. Sometimes it's us going low and, and falling to our knees in prayer and submission. And so we have all of these different ways. Sometimes it's looking outward horizontally in our brothers and our sisters and seeing God in them. But I think that that's really the heart of so much of what our spiritual life is, is just searching for the divine everywhere. And I think that's specifically so much of what we're doing when we're in scripture when we're moving through scripture and working through scripture. So I, I, uh, Lauren mentioned, and I've already mentioned too, I just finished, uh, just finished seminary. And so much of what you're doing in seminary, um, sometimes unintentionally really, is just this long process of kind of just deconstruction of your theology of who you supposed God to be for so long. And it's just... Uh, class after class where you learn these new things, but then it makes you kind of pick off one little layer of what you thought, and then you pick off another layer, and you just kind of keep picking off this cultural connotation that can so easily be lumped into something you've heard your whole life, but then at a certain point, you're left, and you're like, there's no more layers, Um, but luckily I was there long enough to where you kind of start reconstructing. And you start placing things back on. And it's a, for me, it's, it was a very healthy, um, great, great experience. And in that, part of what I spent so much time reconstructing was just my general view of, of who God was, who God is. And I've had people in my life who have consistently affirmed this vision of who God is that has been so healthy for me. I grew up without a father figure, not a tragedy or a trauma, just not what my house looked like. And so for so much of my life, so much of my spiritual life, the way God has been presented to me isn't a father figure. And so I just spent a lot of time thinking I knew what that relationship meant, thinking that I understood that emotional, paternal connection. Um, And then I think that I just started realizing during my time in seminary that uh, I think so much of how I'm viewing God is not as a father, but as a coach, because those were the male figures in my life. 
And anyone who's been in youth sports in America knows that might not be the healthiest way to view God, yeah? Um, I don't know how many times I was told that if the coach is yelling at you, that means they care, and if they stop yelling, they don't care and they've given up on you. So, um, anyway, all that to be said, I just spent so long, I think, really struggling with this emotional pull to God as Father. And then, in this reconstruction period, during my time in seminary, I've had different people just kind of consistently affirm and reframe God, not just as a father, but also in a maternal way. Because while I did not have a father figure growing up, I had mother figures, and so I understand that. I understand the love of a mother. I understand unconditional love from them. I understand maternal protection. I understand um, advocacy from, for, from mothers, all of these things, like I, I get. And it's not just that I get intellectually, like I kind of thought that I understood a paternal connection, but it's like I get it emotionally. And so over this past time, um, I, I feel like something kind of was just like cracked open inside me. And there's this ability that I have now to relate to God in a way that I couldn't before. And it was all because someone just showed me different characteristics of who God is in our scriptures that I hadn't been shown before. They're there, they're reflected, they're represented. And I just hadn't ever been shown or really, they just hadn't been highlighted, highlighted for me. So it was in that that I just started, I mean, I think the real, the real importance of representation just started really hitting me, that there's something so important in us being able to see the divine in our lives, and then us being able to see our lives in the divine as well, and seeing that vice versa, and that push and pull. And I think that's so much of what we spend our time in the scriptures doing. We go in and we're trying to find where's the divine? Who is this? And then we're also going in and we're trying to say, well, where are we? Where are we in the divine story? Where are we in God's story? So it's this constant push and pull and it is inherently more difficult. It's, it's harder when you can't see yourself in the stories and when you can't see the divine in the stories in yourself. It's that push and pull. And so when you don't have it, it is just naturally more difficult. So, all that to be said, where I landed and what I wanted to talk about in Acts is the presence of women in Acts. What I really want to do today, I, I don't want to spend time talking about egalitarian theology. I don't want to spend time talking about um, the giftings of women that we see in Acts. I, to be quite honest, I don't want to use my breath on it. I'm a little out of breath from the three or four steps right there, so I don't have much more to give. So what I do want to do is this morning, I want to honor the reality of women and their presence in the earliest days of the church. So that's what I want to do. And what I'm hoping we can do as a group, as a body, is start seeing that push and like that pull of we can look in the text and in that text we can see the divine and we can see the divine in our sisters. We can see the divine in our mothers, in our daughters, in our wives. And then when we look back into the text, we see them there too. We can look and we say, wow, that's, that's my mom. I see her in that story, or that's my daughter, 
Like, how amazing for a father to look at his young child and to say, I see you in the earliest days of the church. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to spend time sharing three different women's stories that we see in Acts, but it's so easy to move past them very quickly because the story of Acts is not inherently a story of women missionaries moving. It's a story of two different men who are moving throughout their mission, and they encounter women who are actively and presently in ministry and and working for the kingdom. So what I want to do this morning is talk about those women who were there, who were encountered, but tell their stories and not them as participants in someone else's story. All right. We're going to start this morning in Acts 9. In Acts 9, we are introduced to a community, a whole community that was deeply impacted by a single woman. Her name was Tabitha. Tabitha was a powerful humanitarian in the community. She is introduced as three things. The first two things, when someone says, who is Tabitha? What we're told is that she is full of good works and full of acts of charity. That is who Tabitha is. And she is referred to as that because she made tunics and garments for the widows and the poor in her area. Um, So in a time when society moved in this honor and shame culture so heavily, that was not just an act of material provision. It wasn't something to just get the chill off of these women's shoulders. It was also an act of dignity. Tabitha spent her life clothing society's marginalized, outcast, and most vulnerable people with new garments, these garments that gave them honor, these garments that gave them dignity and respect and reflected a worth and a value on their lives that the community did not give them. That is who Tabitha was. And she did not just act out of her own sense of morality. The third thing that we're told about Tabitha is that she's a disciple. This title is not just given flippantly throughout scriptures. It notes a real transformation in someone's identity, transformation in what their day-to-day acts and moves are. And that is who Tabitha was. Christ worked through her in the earliest days of the church, and he built the kingdom around her. Years into this work, into doing this humanitarianism, Tabitha eventually became sick, and she died. Those whom she'd helped in the community immediately flocked to her and mourned over this loss. It was huge. It was tragic. And so people just continued to come, and they figured they just want to honor her the best way they could. And so they took her body, and they washed her body, and they placed it in the upper room, in this upper story of a house. People continued to fill the house and fill the room that Tabitha was in. And they did not just fill the room to just sit and be with her and weep. While they did that, they also brought all of the garments that she made them. That's such an, ev- like an evident, um, such evidence to that transformation that those garments were in their lives, that they brought them with her to mourn her life and to respect who she was. And so the people were there and they just stayed and they wept. Her life and her work as a disciple of Christ was so impactful to those around her that even in her lifelessness and her complete inability to provide to any of those people anymore, they continued to stay and flood that space and be with her. While they're there, they hear word that there's a prominent apostle that's not far from where their town is. So what could they do now, though? 
what does it really matter? Because she's gone. But there was such desperation in the loss of this woman to the community that people said, we'll go. We'll go and we'll find this apostle. And, and, and maybe there's something. Maybe he can help in some way. And he was about a half day's walk. So two people from that community left mourning to go find this apostle of Christ. Once they found him, they begged him to please come back with them. We don't know much about what they said in this time, but it was clearly so convincing and such a, a, a great testament to who Tabitha was that they, he agreed. He agreed to walk the half day's walk back four to five hours to go and see the body of a deceased woman. When he arrived in the upper room, he saw exactly how it was when it left. It was full of widows, weeping over Tabitha's body. They all immediately turn to the apostle and start showing him that clothing and showing him the garments and saying, look at who Tabitha was. Look at what, look at what she did for us. The community clearly had not just lost a seamstress, but they had clearly lost a person who really saw them, who valued them, and then gave them something that reflected their own dignity and gave them safety and a home. This is something that struck the apostle because it's something he had experienced himself with the life of Jesus. And he too had experienced that type of loss and mourning in Jesus' death. There were so many people in the room that he couldn't even get to the body. So he asked everyone to leave. So there in the room, it was the apostle and the body of Tabitha. The once chaotic room was quiet and empty. Tabitha's body, the one that worked tirelessly for the sake of her community, was now still and it rested motionless and breathless. The apostle prayed and then he turned to Tabitha and quickly and just simply with two words, he said, Tabitha, arise. Tabitha's eyes opened and she sat up. Her body was resurrected and she arose. In that moment, we see Tabitha, who is full of good works and charity and service and humanitarianism and advocacy, and we see her be resurrected and rise up and burst back forth into this world. Tabitha's story is powerful, so much so that it became known throughout all in her city, and it prompted many there to believe in the power of the Lord. Today, we share and we celebrate Tabitha's story. She's a woman who bore the image of God, and God dwelt inside of her. This is the woman who embodied good deeds and embodied charity, and then in her, in that body, good deeds and charity were resurrected. So this morning, we honor Tabitha, and we honor her active and indispensable role in the creation of the church, and we thank her for it. Thank you, Tabitha. Our next story comes from Acts 16, and here is where we hear the story of who many Christian traditions note as the very first Christian conversion in all of Europe. This person was Lydia. I'm particularly excited about this story because as we talk about representation in scriptures, um, we have multiple Lydia's in our kids' ministry in the back. Yeah, I, so I'm just really excited about that. I think some Sundays I check three Lydia's into the elementary room. So um, what a cool time and opportunity where we get to share the namesake of some of our littlest members um, here, some of the daughters uh, in our church. 
Lydia was a woman who lived in a Roman colony. Living in a Roman colony had a lot of pros, but it also had a lot of cons. Um, some of the pros, some of the benefits were the fact that you were exempt from paying things like taxes and tributes. So there was some financial advantage of living there. Uh, but there was also a heightened obligation that the people in the Roman colonies had for worshiping Rome, worshiping the empire, the imperial cult, and the emperor. Um, this was a real mixed bag for Lydia because she was a prominent businesswoman. She worked in the textile industry, and she dealt specifically with purple cloth. Um, purple is important because the, what was used to dye the cloth purple was um, particularly prestigious, and so she wasn't just selling um, normal cloths or garments, but she ran a business where she sold prestigious um, clothing and garments and textiles. However, while she could benefit from this financial portion of living in the Roman colony, she was also a worshiper of God. Uh, when you see that, what that means is that while she was not born ethnically Jewish, um, at some point in time in her life, she gave um, her loyalty or obedience and she, she began to worship the God of Israel and she began to keep the Torah. So that is who Lydia was. She was in a place where she could benefit financially from the Roman colony, but also the ability to worship freely was not necessarily present. And so we see that because she's not able to worship in a synagogue on the Sabbath. And instead what we see her do is that she and a group of women would have to gather together outside of the city limits near a river, a little bit west of the city. And so that is where we find a story really start about Lydia. It's one Sabbath, she's there with her community of women, and they are seeking to encounter the divine, just as we're doing this morning. They're gathered by the river, and they're going to pray, and they're going to commune, and they're going to worship. While they're there, a small group of men approached them. They too were looking for a place of prayer, a place to gather and worship. These men were from out of town, and they began to have a conversation with a group of women. The message that they were sharing to these women acknowledged the God of Israel, the God that Lydia worshipped, but it also expressed something a little bit different. It expressed the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ, whom they referred to as the Messiah. Lydia sat with her community of women, and they just listened. In this moment, Lydia experienced real divine intervention. The very thing that she came to that river for, to interact and encounter the divine, she receives and experiences right in that moment. The Lord, we are told explicitly, the Lord opened her heart. And immediately in response to her heart being opened to this new message of the Messiah, this gospel of Jesus, she responds by then being baptized in that very river that she would gather at and congregate at in order to encounter the divine. She did not just stop there. She then went and brought her whole household to that river in the attempt for them to also experience that same divine intervention that she had just experienced. After the baptisms, Lydia opened her home to that group of men. She fed them, and she housed them, and she provided a refuge for them during their time there. It was such a refuge that while the men stayed in the area, at one point they were arrested and then were asked to leave, said they must leave the city. And the one place that this group of men stopped before they left was Lydia's home. Lydia was the woman whose heart was opened by God. 
And she's also the woman who then began opening her life to those around her and her home to those around her. She opened her home, the act as one of, if not the very first house churches in that area. She's the first convert we see in this area and she immediately opens her home. This area that I'm referring to is known as Philippi. There are many letters that Paul writes to the churches that provide instruction and sometimes harsh and severe reprimand. However, what we see consistently attested to in the church uh, in Philippi, written to the Philippians, in that letter, we see Paul write and attest to that church's joy. We did a series a couple years back, I think literally titled Joy, where we just moved through that letter to the Philippians, and that is where this church started that Lydia opened her home to, and attest to its joy, and it also attests to its abundant generosity. And it wasn't an abundant generosity out of surplus. It is very clearly said that it is an abundant generosity that this church gave at the expense of themselves. It was an abundant generosity that forced them into um, poverty and struggles. That is this church. That is the story of Lydia, is a woman who in Philippi was the first convert and immediately turned to start housing and nurturing and investing in the community around her that then blossomed into the church of Philippi that we get to read today. Lydia's story is powerful. She's regarded by many Christian traditions as a saint and as the deaconess of Philippi. Today we celebrate and we share Lydia's story. She's a woman who bore the image of God and God dwelt inside of her. The woman whose heart was opened by the Lord and then responded by opening her life up to all those around her. So this morning we honor Lydia and we honor her active and indispensable role in the creation of the church. And we thank her for it. Thank you, Lydia. Our final story is found in Acts 18. And here we hear about one of the earliest theological teachers, one of the earliest theologians, one of the earliest missionaries. Um, all you theology nerds, I'm not talking about Irenaeus. I'm not talking about Athanasius. I'm not talking about any of those old men. I'm talking, I'm talking about Priscilla. Priscilla was married to a Jewish man and they lived in Rome. While she lived there, tension increased between the Jewish community and between those who were proclaiming Christ. And it became tumultuous enough that the emperor expelled all Jewish people from Rome. Priscilla and her husband immediately in that moment became refugees and had to immigrate somewhere else. They had to restart their life their, uh, without a community, without a home, without really any sort of stability there. But what we will see in the future is that, as well as now, is that Priscilla is particularly adaptable. She and her husband are able to find a job there and they become tent makers and they also find a place to stay. So they've set a home and they are, they're there now. After some time though, while they're there, Priscilla and her husband meet a man who had just moved to Corinth. 
he was traveling to the area and he was preaching to all of the Jews and the Greeks about this proclamation of Christ, the very thing that caused so much turmoil in their last home that they had to leave. However, he too was a tent maker and so she and her husband grew closer to this man. They spent time with him, so much so that eventually they opened up their house to this man and allowed him to stay with them. As time went on, they heard more and more about this gospel, and they learned more about the teaching that this man did week in and week out as he went to the synagogues on the Sabbath, and he continued to have conversations and discuss with all of the Jews and and the Greeks that are present. One thing that I really love about Priscilla's story is that we don't know anything about her conversion. We don't know if she was a believer before she met, this missionary man, when she was back in Rome, we don't know if she was a believer immediately upon hearing the gospel. We don't know if it took weeks and weeks of her listening and living with this man, but that's not the point of her story. Her story is not a story about conversion. Her story is a story about ministry. It's a story about preaching, and it's a story about teaching. Priscilla, again, chooses to leave her home This time, not out of expulsion, but out of uh, obedience to a calling and to a conviction. She and her husband join this missionary, and they begin their ministry along with him. And they sail from Corinth to Syria. After some time, they then end up in Ephesus. It was there that the missionary who first brought them into this world of ministry said goodbye, and Priscilla and her husband started to set real roots and began their ministry there. One day while they were in Ephesus, a Jewish man from Alexandria came, came to Ephesus and he began teaching about Jesus. Priscilla was aware of his talent. They could tell he's a great speaker, he's a great teacher, and he has a vast knowledge of the scriptures and the life of Jesus. However, when he spoke, there's a small gap in his knowledge on something. We're not really told what it is, but there's something that Priscilla and her husband are able to note. And so they let him finish, and afterwards they pull him aside, and they just give him a small correction or just a small teaching, whatever the error was. What this means is that Priscilla and her knowledge on theology and her ability to teach was so great in the early church that she was not just a teacher of people, but a teacher of teachers. That man then went on, the Alexandrian man went on to, after receiving that teaching, to continue his ministry, and he impacted many in Ephesus and Corinth. He was so influential that he is attested to in the letter to the Corinthians um, as a problem, because he became so influential. And it started with an initial teaching from Priscilla and her husband. Priscilla continued preaching and teaching in ministry for years. She is referenced in three different New Testament letters as someone who is in ministry. She's called a worker in Christ. She is helping to start and build up and nurture the church and different churches in its earliest days. She and her husband are said to have risked their own necks for the sake of Paul's life. Priscilla's story is powerful. She is one of the earliest teachers in the church. She left safety and consistency, and she risked real persecution, a real threat um, for her calling that she felt. 
and you know what else? Do you know what else she risked? It wasn't just um, religious persecution, which is huge. Um, she was also sailing the seas in 40 AD. I don't know about y'all, but I had a mini panic attack in a kayak on a lake a couple weeks ago because it got a little too choppy. <laughs> um, and so I don't know what boats were like then. I, I really don't know. Uh, but if they were any rougher than a kayak from 2022 in a man-made lake, uh, not for me. But Priscilla, it was for her. In the earliest days of the church, she was called, she was convicted, and her story is powerful. Today we share and we celebrate Priscilla's story. She's a woman who bore the image of God, and God dwelt inside of her. The woman who left everything to preach and teach and minister and build our very first churches that blossomed into places where we receive some of our most formative scriptures. So this morning, we honor Priscilla, and we honor her active and her indispensable role in the creation of the church, and we thank her for it. Thank you, Priscilla. There are many other women who are mentioned in Acts like this, maybe not to this extent with this much content, but we, we see um, Timothy's mother be referenced, um, and it's cross-referenced in another letter about how his mother and his grandmother were these incredible believers. We see Mary, the mother of Jesus, attested to, Mary, the mother of John Mark. We see Philip's uh, four prophetic daughters spoken about. Um, I hope for many things this morning, as I kind of mentioned at the very beginning. Um, I, I hope you learned something. I hope these are um, stories that maybe stick in a way that they didn't um, before. Um, but, but in reality, I, I just really hope that this can help us when we think about the earliest church, the history of the church, when we think about Jesus's ministry, when we think about God as a being um, and as an image that we all bear, uh, that we do not just see men, but we also see women. I hope that sons, you see God's maternal and life-giving characteristics in your mother. I could go on a little rant here about the, the, image, uh, the image of childbearing with God. I won't do it, but I could. But I hope you begin to see that and that this helps you. Fathers, I hope you see these women in their stories in your daughters, and I hope you see your daughter in the history of the church. Brothers, husbands, I hope the same thing for you. I hope that when we start looking at scripture and looking at the divine, we see a larger diversity than maybe we have seen before. And women, I, I hope that you note and have felt this morning, that you sit in this morning, that you reflect on the fact that you are an indispensable and active part in the current existence of the church and you bear an image and a reflection of God that is irreplaceable without you. And for that, we thank you. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for these stories. We thank you for these women. And we thank you for this space to come and speak about both of them. God, I pray that you 
um, begin or continue um, just fostering inside of us a more diverse view of who you are in that while you are one, you are also a reflection of the many. God, I pray that when we look to our right and to our left, we can see our brothers and our sisters reflected in the divine, when we look to our parents, when we look to our, our children, that we see a reflection of the divine. And, and I pray that we start or continue um, just figuring out how to better love that reflection and respect and honor that reflection for its uniqueness and for its importance, its irreplaceability in the history of our church and in our current church today. Help us know you better, help us see you better, and help us know and see each other better, God. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.